Um, good evening. I am Kevin Griffin. I, I actually like to start earlier so that I can just do like pregame. But uh, speaking of which, we're missing the Warriors, which is, but no, you can't watch every game. It gets exhausting. So um, did I say who I am yet? Uh, Kevin Griffin. This is Dharma and Recovery. And uh, and uh, it's March, and I, I actually posted on Facebook last night when I posted something about this that it's, it's we would be on the third step. So hopefully that will provide me some guidance. I feel somewhat uh, derailed. Uh, I've been working f- uh, on some writing, and uh, sometimes I get so absorbed into it that uh, it's hard to engage the rest of the world like the real world out there. You get sort of into your own head. I'm sure none of that, you, that happens to none of you. But uh, so I'm going to ramble a little bit and then we'll meditate. Uh, but it, just a couple of things that I want to note that uh, I was reading at a review of some new TV show, and I can't remember what that was, but it referred to the uh, show Mom. How many people here have ever seen the show Mom? I figured some of you had. Right? Very cheesy sitcom, you know, just, you know, laugh track. But, you know, it's about recovering alcoholics. And it's just so interesting. To see. And it's like... It, even though it's a comedy, in a way it's serious in that I don't feel like it's, like usually the way AA meetings and recovery are depicted in films is there's something like annoying about it or cliched about it. And this somehow actually seems real to me, it's, even though it's funny. And the two episodes that I watched that were just available in demand both wound up being about sex, which I thought was perfectly appropriate because once you get sober, what else is there, right? So, <laughs> And uh, anyway, I, you know, I can't recommend it because I think it's, like I said, it's cheesy, but, you know, I sort of laughed my ass off. So, um, But I, I think it's interesting. I just think that it's a sign that something is changing in our culture when that becomes like... Uh, they're able to depict it in some kind of a way that just seems perfectly natural, I guess. It seems just kind of perfectly natural. And and all the jokes were jokes that we would all get, but then you realize, yeah, but this is like on ABC or something. So presumably, like, everybody gets this humor now. So recovery has now become just so mainstream in a way that uh, you can just make it into a sitcom. I don't know. So one of the reasons that struck me as interesting, and, and I sh- this is definitely we're going to have to delete. So, you know, my my public, what people know about me in public is mostly what they've either read in my books or what I talk about. And there's, you know, uh, that's somewhat circumscribed. That is, uh, I haven't told you everything about myself. And uh, one of the things that I don't think I've ever written about is how I started writing. Um, 
because I used to be uh, a professional musician. And I, I say professional because I got paid to do it, but that's about the only thing about it that was professional. Um, but anyway, when I got sober, I went back to school. I was encouraged by my first English teacher to take up creative writing, which is how I became a writer. And that was in uh, the fall of 1988, when I was three years sober. And I took a creative writing course, at the end of which one of the teachers I was working with suggested I write a novel. And so I started writing fiction. And then when I finished my undergraduate degree, I went to graduate school and studied creative writing, and I wrote another novel. So I wrote two novels, and when I was 10 years sober, I finished school, and nobody had published my novels, so I felt like I was a failure with my writing, uh, as I felt that I'd been with my music because I hadn't become a rock and roll star. These are the standards we set ourselves to, you know. Uh, but... Um, so off and on, I've kind of gone back to fiction. Uh, I, I wrote something after One Breath at a Time was published that also didn't get published, <laughs> so you don't know about it. Um, and uh, so anyway, last Thanksgiving, I g- got an idea, and I just finished writing the first draft of it. And, um, and it happens that the character is a al- recovering alcoholic, and it, but I treat it very casually, like not like a big thing. It just shows up, like in chapter three, that he's like, oh, I, I think I need to go to a meeting. And he's like 20 years sober. So it's, And so it struck me when I saw this sitcom that, oh, maybe it's time, maybe that's, you know, what I'm doing is also sort of part of the culture in that recovery has become something that you don't have to make it like, oh, it's about this, and it's like a big dramatic thing, or it's uh, something we have to satirize. Because I don't think mom is a satire. It's just a sitcom just situations that are funny, right? Which is what a sitcom is, situation comedy. So I, um, so anyway, uh, the thing that, uh, my the reason my brain is so, I kind of, I was talking about being inward. When you write fiction, you get so into the world that you're creating that it becomes sometimes more real than the world you're living in. So I find myself, and the, because I'm writing this first-person narrative, I start, and like writing that, you have to, it's like being an actor where you're playing a role, and that, and then you, you know, you're off the set, but you're still like playing the character, so I've been having trouble sometimes <laughs> lapsing into the character, uh, who actually isn't very different from me, so it's not much of a lapse, but anyway. The main difference is he isn't a Buddhist. I thought, world's not ready for that, it, which is true, right? If you had a novel about a Buddhist, it would ha- you have to. S- spirituality is always satirized in media. I'm sorry to do this long commentary, but uh, you know, it's always you know new agey and silly, right? When they ha- when they depict, uh, and and I think and the recovery used to be kind of like that too in media, but I think that that's changed. And one day it would be nice if like coming to a Buddhist meditation center could be just a like natural part of a narrative instead of like, oh, well, they must be hippies if they went there, you know, because that's what it, that's how it's always depicted. I don't know. I don't know if you care about this stuff, but it's interesting to me to see how the culture treats us, you know.
I mean, the result is, no, this will maybe be the last thing I say. Whenever somebody says that in a meeting, you know it's going to go on for another 10 minutes, right? <laughs> so I'll just say this one last thing. <laughs> right? Um, that those depictions still then, they influence how we see things. So that... Um, It becomes hard, you know, you, the first time you go to a Buddhist center, you're very self-conscious because you think you're going to this weird hippie place, right? So, I don't know if, and once you're like part of this, you don't know anymore if it's a weird hippie place or not. You're just, it's just the place you go. So, I don't know what it is to you guys. It's just home to me. So, uh, I'm going to make one announcement, which I'm going to announce again later, but I'm teaching a retreat in June at Cloud Mountain Retreat Center, which is in southern Washington. You fly to Portland, and we have a nice shuttle bus. We all ride up there together. It's a great, great place. Uh, Buddhism, the 12th Steps, and it's a very intensive meditation uh, retreat uh, for people in recovery. So if you're interested, there are a bunch of flyers back there, and even if you're not sure if you're interested, you might take it and think about being interested. It's a few months away, so you have time. It's a five-day retreat. So I, I start advertising early. All right, so um, we will meditate, or at least we will sit quietly and uh, appear to be meditating. Which, um, So if anybody comes in, they'll think that we're really blissed out. So that's <laughs> the important thing. You know, you, know, you got it. It's... About fake it till you make it. it and it's very relevant, actually, with meditation because you really are faking it till you make it. Um, anyway, so, I, and I will give some instruction, such as it is. Let's begin with the bell. Settling into your posture and your wherever you're sitting. Letting your awareness come into your body. Like arriving in your body. What do you feel feel in your body right now? What are you aware of? With mindfulness, we just start where we are, not, not starting with trying to create something. Now just feeling any sensations, whether pleasant or unpleasant, in the body, neutral, 
and having a sense of releasing, relaxing, even as you sit upright and alert. Letting the shoulders relax, the belly soft, Mindfulness is a practice of simplicity. Sometimes it's difficult to even understand what the simple instruction means. One instruction when sitting is to feel the body sitting. What does that mean? open now to sounds, another sense door. We talk about silence, and yet the lack of sound or the lack of the herd. Maybe impossible to actually experience. What can you hear right now? Listen not only to the sounds in the room, but also to the sounds in your own body, in your own ears. Again, not looking for anything special. Very simple. Just listening.
know, feeling your body, hearing sounds. Can you feel or identify your mood or emotion right now? Might be something you can name or just something that's felt. Now letting your attention come to rest on the breath. Now this becomes the center, the focal point. Find a point of sensation in the breath, either the nostrils or the belly or the chest. Let that become your home. Notice when your mind wanders from the breath and gently bring it back. Either feeling the touch of the air at the nostrils or the movement of chest or belly. It's the most basic function of survival, breathing in and breathing out.
Keep your practice simple. Try not to judge yourself. Meditation isn't a competition or a challenge to do something properly. Just sitting itself is the practice. Let your effort be kind. Bring a quality of engagement and willingness. See when you're indulging in daydreams or fantasies or long narratives. See if you can let go. Not that that's bad or that you are bad. It's just that we're trying to learn another way of being, train the mind. Train the mind to be present, to be awake. not lost in delusion. But even if the mind is lost in delusion, we don't punish ourselves for that because that's our nature, is to get lost. Our minds are story-making machines, judging machines, 
analyzing machines. We can't simply turn that off. But sometimes with a certain amount of persistence and gentle effort, we find ourselves connecting in a flow or kind of zone. But even that is not something we can make or create. It arises out of the willingness, out of the showing up, out of the gentle persistence.
in just a few more minutes. Let's see if you can incline the mind towards presence, towards breath, towards this moment.
Okay, I'm committed to being of service now for the rest of the evening. So, how can I be of help? Any any questions about meditation? Um, maybe any you know anything I said that might have gotten you curious or the experience you had as you were sitting that was challenging that you'd like to maybe talk about? Anything at all? I'm Jeffrey. I'm an alcoholic and drug addict. Hi, Jeffrey. Um, one of the things that I was thinking about when I was trying to ask you to come here was um, 12 steps and of prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God. All right. never been known to not can there, can well, there, are, there are people like in sure. the back and things thank you Jeff so yeah perfect thank you oh that's yeah that's all it just gives me an opportunity to get to know uh-huh. me a little more yeah yeah uh, because you know I'm a crazy fuck and so, right you know whenever I get a chance to know me <laughs> that's good so I well, like that last step yeah well, that's the eleventh step, actually. Yeah, so, sorry. but no, it's okay. Just you know, I'm I'm a professional, so you know. Um, well, too, just so you know. right? I'm you a you too, yeah. I, I no, I have no doubt. Um, well, I, I, it's an interesting comment. So he's saying, you know, that meditation is a place to get to know himself. In this case, Jeffrey. Jeffrey. We could all take that to be yeah. for ourselves, and, and you know, I think that's I think that's true. On and and what I I mean, do you mind if I say something about what you're saying? Not at all. It wasn't really a question. I know it wasn't, but that doesn't mean I can't say. I, and and I don't mean to. Yeah, it just you know, it brings up it. It's. A, because there is this larger question, the spiritual question of who am I, which is actually a, a classic kind of mantra in a way. It's, it's, the, uh, it's one of the kind of core questions. And, and certainly when we meditate, we get to see our stuff, right? Our thoughts, our feelings, the places we go, the places our shadow, you know, we see a lot in ourselves. Um, but the the question that I have is: Is that who I am? You know, am am I that stuff? Well, well I think it's the same question we all had when we were using. Uh huh. This is a, a recovery kind of. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think that's one of the questions that that many ghosts were drug out of the yeah. closet by mind or mood altering substances that they provided. Right? Yeah. Spend the last few years of my life sober, shoot the long 
Carol. God willing. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, and what I do with these last years for me are very important. 57, so, so I, yeah. I have 25 years left. And they're important years, and there are some years I don't remember. That's all. Yeah. Well, I think, and I think the fact that you're talking about yourself in the third person is, is uh, a good idea, <laughs> in, you know, in a certain way. That sort of stepping away from yourself and looking at that, um, right? That's what, that's, that's what the program is. Right. I mean, that's the inventory and, you know, that, that process of looking at ourselves is really important because... You know, the question of identity, and this gets brought up sometimes around, especially like people who are sort of more serious about their Buddhism, which I try not to be too serious about it. But, you know, if the Buddha says uh, that all identities are constructions and that you shouldn't be attached to any identities because because attaching, attaching to anything winds up causing suffering, then... People will sometimes say, and I've seen people in the program say this to regular Buddhist teachers, not teachers that were in recovery like me, and say, well, you know, I go to AA and when I'm there I say I'm an alcoholic, but if I'm a Buddhist I'm not supposed to like cling to an identity, so maybe I shouldn't do that. Maybe I shouldn't say I'm an alcoholic. And I think that's a good question, and I think it's also one that's, where, I mean, I'm really going off from what you were talking about, but one of the things I think is important is that is to see that there's this relative reality that we live in that we have to deal with on a practical level, which is that I can't drink or use no matter what, <laughs> you know. And then there's this absolute reality, which is that identity is a construction. And if I get, if I try to apply absolute view to relative issues, then I can deceive myself into saying, well, I'm not really an alcoholic. That's just an identity, a constructed identity. So I guess that means I can drink. You know, it's just an, that can wind up being just another way. It's like another spiritual bypass, right? Another way I'm going to use spirituality to say, oh, well, I've transcended that. You know, I've let go of all identities. And it's like, okay, then, you know, let me have your wallet, you know, kind of. Like, no, that's actually, no, I want to hang on to that thing, the credit card with my name on it. I'll hang on to that. That identity I'll use. And, it, and so that's like, it sort of shows you the falseness of that, of that position. It's like, yeah, y- you are not, an alcoholic doesn't define you. It's just a very useful term and way of reminding yourself that, you, that this kind of behavior leads to, to ill. You know, and, and that that's not what you want. Uh, it's not good or bad, because, you know, it's just unpleasant, you know. Anyway, <laughs> you had your hand up. Um, I just had a question about... Yeah, let's see if we can use the microphone, Sorry. if you don't mind, because uh, there are many people here, and, and it's so nice to see so many people. Thank you for coming. Um, I know you're all here for me, so, yes. you know. Oh, no, you're here for yourself, right? Yes, please. Um, I just had a question about, um, I guess, the difference between prayer and meditating. Uh I find when I meditate or trying to meditate, um, 
I feel like I'm supposed to be completely silent in my head, but I keep Mm. focusing on, like, I will just keep saying, okay, breath, 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 or, like, air, follow. You know what I'm just saying? Saying the same thing over again, and I'm just wondering if that's wrong. Oh, it's just so wrong. You you must leave (laughs) now. I just want to know, like, the difference. Take her out. Where's my security detail? 86. (laughs) But just to know, like, No, it's a really good question. The difference between prayer and meditation, you know, I... I think of prayer and meditation as kind of they're they're on this spectrum, and uh, kind of in the middle they kind of meet, and out on the fringes they they seem to be different, you know. So I mean, first of all, meditation takes many different forms. So there's there's meditation that is more formless, which is like em- just emptiness and kind of letting go of everything and. Um, but most of the forms of meditation use some kind of form, like, you know, saying to yourself, in and out, or counting your breaths, or repeating a mantra. So that starts then mo- moving towards prayer, which is saying some words with a specific purpose. Now, as long as you don't think of prayer as being about influencing some power out there to do what you want it to do for you. You know, like, please God, fix my life. You know, but rather as a way of speaking to yourself to invoke or evoke some attitude or feeling in yourself, like, grant me the serenity to... uh, Well, I forgot the serenity prayer. I'm really bad. Uh, Accept... Except, I knew there was something in there. Except the things I cannot change. You know, that, just that phrase, right? What's the purpose of that? Is when, do I say those words in order to influence some being out there to make me feel that? No, I say those words to remind myself to accept things I cannot change, right? And so that is me trying to evoke or plant a seed of a certain attitude or feeling within myself. So it's more intentional. Okay. You have enough for everybody? No, I'm just saying. So that's, uh, there's more intentionality behind that, but with meditation there's also intentionality, right? So it's more just sort of degrees uh, of of, I guess we could say of intentionality, but more the the forms that they take. Um, so where I think particularly Buddhism merges with what we would call prayer is in the loving kindness practice, which we call meditation. But in loving kindness, it's suggested that we sit and visualize people and say to them in our minds, may you be happy, and say to ourselves, may I be happy, may you be peaceful. Well, that is essentially a prayer, right? It's trying to evoke something, to plant some seed within ourselves. Um, so, yes, there, there are practices in which we... The kind of practice you were talking about first is the kind of practice where we're trying to let go of attachment to thing, to mental objects, let's say, like to, to thoughts, to the, all the things that our thoughts become attached to. And that is uh, kind of a core uh, 
or um, a uh, fundamental tool or it's not the word I'm trying to think of another word um, a skill that we try to develop but not with the idea that I'm supposed to not think you know that's just that's just more of a because that attitude in itself which I was discouraging during the meditation you know that attitude in itself is counter to the purpose that you're trying to achieve so if you're you know trying to make something happen the goal of which is to not to try make to make something happen right so there's an oxymoronic thing happening there so uh, the this is what, the great challenge it was actually what I was going to talk about somewhat this this evening it's essentially what step 3 is about a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of god it's how do i turn my will and my life over how do i engage in this practice in a way that isn't passive and yet isn't trying to strive for some goal. And that is the secret. And it's not, it's not the secret because that implies there's a, there, that somebody's withholding information. That is the trick. <laughs> that is the art of practice. Is can I, can I let go of thoughts without pushing them away? Can I let go of thoughts without judging myself when I can't let go of thoughts? That doesn't make sense. Okay. Can I try to let go of thoughts without being getting in conflict with thoughts? So this practice isn't so much about stopping thinking, but what's much more important, and, and that can come about to some extent sometimes, but what's much more important is to change our relationship to thinking, which just kind of comes back to the first question with Jeffrey, my relationship to myself, right? So my relationship to my thinking normally is I have a thought, I believe it, I act on it, I speak on it. You know, it's just information. That's how we relate to our thoughts. It's information for how to be in the world. In Buddhist practice, we're trying to separate from our thoughts so that we can see them as not information, but just as stuff that's showing up in our mind and that we can then look at it as an object. Normally, we take a thought as a subject. That is, it's me. I am the thought. It's my thought. But if we can look at it as an object, as, oh, there's a thought, it's like saying, oh, let me look at Kevin rather than I am Kevin, you know, look at Kevin. So I look at the thought and I go, oh, what is that thought? And then I'm actually shifting points of view. I'm shifting perspective so that now I'm not just being, you know, run by the thoughts. They're not controlling me. I'm actually now able to question them. And some of my thoughts are really not helpful. You know, some of the, I mean, there's lots of thoughts that go through that really aren't a problem. They might be mildly annoying if I'm trying to meditate and turn them off, but they're not a problem. But then there are the thoughts that are, you know, the anger, ill will, self-centeredness, selfishness, lust, gluttony, all those good seven deadly sins and all that. You know, that, and you see them and you go, and when you can look at them, 
and change that relationship to them, you can actually make different choices because thought comes before action. So if you're able to see it and not act on it, then you can change your whole life, which is what we do in recovery, right? Because in recovery, whether we have it consciously or not, we, or before recovery, we have the thought or the feeling or the impulse to drink or use or act out on our addiction. And recovery in, partly involves being able to see that stuff and not act on it. So it's the same thing in a way. We change our relationship to our addiction. You know, I, it's not that I'm not an alcoholic anymore. It's just that I don't act on it anymore. That's the, a world of difference, right? But it's the, it's the, it's that change in relationship. I'm, how I how I relate to it, and then what I do with my thoughts. So I think it's much more important to notice what you're thinking, and just kind of like oh. Kind of take that in and then come back to your breath. Notice the next thought, come back. You know, and, and, and notice what's the one that takes me away for 10 minutes, you know, and what's the one that only gets me for five seconds. And then you start to see, oh, that's the place where I'm really stuck. I'm really lost in that resentment, or I've really got a lot of fear about that, whatever it is. And, uh, you know, after a while, it starts to become this, you know, Jack Cornfield talks about it as your top 10. You know, uh, you know that sort of the 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 hits keep coming, you know, in your brain, right? And you st- and you start to kind of go, oh, there's that again. Oh, here I go again. Oh, and th- that's completely different relationship to a thought, you know, than than oh man, I you know I got to go kill him. You know, it's <laughs> like wow, there I go wanting to kill him again. Huh? Interesting. You know, and, th- and then you can bring in something like a prayer, like may you be happy or I forgive you. Uh, Bless you. So this is the art of practice, you know, and I I think we uh, meditation gets talked about or gets conveyed somehow as being this thing. Just stop thinking, you know, just turn. That's good meditation. It's like, what's the point of that, really? Does anybody know why you shouldn't have thoughts? Why you should stop thinking? I think we, we. we sort of take that as just a given. Well, that's what meditation is. It must be good. You know, it's spiritual. It's to not think. Because, you know, stinking thinking or, you know, I'm not supposed to. But there's nothing inherently wrong with thoughts. In fact, we wouldn't be here if it weren't for thoughts, you know. We wouldn't have clothing if it weren't for thoughts. We wouldn't have this nice warm place. You know, thoughts are what have created our world for good or for bad, right? Yeah. Austin, hi. It's funny that you mentioned that because one of the things my father used to tell me as a kid, he'd ask me, what are you thinking right now? I'd say, oh, nothing. He's like, well, without thinking, you're dead. Oh, <laughs> right. I don't really like hearing myself talk. No, well, so. who does? <laughs> um, yeah, just during that last little meditation, I was getting kind of frustrated. I couldn't shut my thought off. Mm-hmm. And then I reverted back to what you were saying at the beginning about being aware so I just became aware of not being able to shut it off. Good. And yeah. I mean, the room was spinning. My my breath was labored. Uh-huh. And uh, I don't know. I was just getting hot and flustered and just couldn't, you know, frustrated. Yeah. So then I became aware and uh, it kind of just stopped. I mean, the, the voice was still there, but... Yeah. Um, That's changing your relationship than, to the experience. Yeah, exactly. Awareness is different from being... 
in it. Oh, yeah, thank you. That's, you could have said more, but that's okay. Hi, I'm Francesca. Hi, Francesca. Um, first of all, thank you for your guided imagery in, in that meditation. Um, I usually listen to John Kabat-Zinn, and while I was listening to your voice and what you I was thinking if Kevin has a meditation CD he should you know and I went off on this whole thing and then caught myself right. you know planning sure. the planner I have a planner that's oh, yeah. huge you know and so I caught myself planning but I I was reading today in your book on um, Buddhism and the 12 steps on step three where you talk about karma and then um, I thought about what is my intention when I'm meditating, when I go to sit to meditate? What is my intention? And I try to connect that. What, what kind of karma am I creating through that process? And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that because you explained a little bit yeah. in the chapter. Mm. So the, there's this really interesting passage in one of the ancient Buddhist texts where the Buddha says karma is intention. I think that's probably what you're referring to because I think I talk about that in there somewhere. And it's it's uh, just to contextualize it a little bit, a lot of what the Buddha did at his time was make these twists on the existing teachings that people understood the Brahmanic teachings, mostly. And, you know, in the West, we have this idea of karma as being fate, and that's that kind of comes more out of a Hindu version of karma. But nonetheless, the word karma in, in Sanskrit just means action. So when we talk about karma, what we're really talking about is the law of karma, which says actions bring results. And that's that's the essence of it, you know, and and that then certain kinds of actions bring certain kind of results. You know, what goes around comes around. So what the Buddha is, is suggesting is that there's a step before the action which actually informs the quality of the action, which then informs the quality of the result. And that step before the action is the intention behind the action. And this is something he observed in himself, which is why his teachings are so powerful, because everything he taught, he, he tried it out himself. You know, it wasn't just stuff he made up or, you know, got, had a revelation. He, he looked very closely into his own experiences, his own actions, and he realized that behind every action and before every action, uh, there was an intention, and a, a, something, some motivation. In other words, there's a reason why I'm doing this. There's something, some result that I want. The wanting is the intention, right? There's, intent, there's some result that I want to come out of my action. And so he said, you know, watch your intentions. Because you can look good. You, know, you can be doing the right thing, supposedly. But if the motivation behind it is selfish, you know, or, you know, based in, Hatred, ill will, in grasping, in in accumulation. You know, if it's trying to get something or get rid of something, you know, 
then if, it, if it's not really coming out of love or, uh, or letting go, then the results aren't going to be good, no matter how it looks on the surface. And, and this, so that's a huge challenge. I mean, there's a you know, famous phrase, I don't know where it comes from, somewhere in Western literature, that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Well, that sounds like it's countering that, what the Buddha said. But really, what the road to hell is paved with unconscious bad intentions <laughs> that we think are good intentions. You know, that's, we tell ourselves that. Oh, I did it. I really did it for you, you know, and, and it's not, right? So... So the challenge then, and one of the purposes of our practice, is to become aware on the level of intention. To really be able to look honestly at ourselves and see, why am I really doing this? And that, again, to me, that just brings us right back to the principles of recovery. Right? It's the same thing that the recovery is, talks about. Well, you know, about being rigorously honest. You know. The steps even actually uh, pull out intentions separately and set intentions separately from some of the actions. This third step when it says turn our will and our lives over is talking about our intention and our actions. Our will and our lives is our intention and our actions. The sixth step, we were entirely ready. That's, we were, you know, we had we were prepared. We were about to do it, right? That's like having our intention clear. The eighth step, very explicitly, you know, we made a list of those we had harmed and became willing to make amends. So each of those is actually separating out intention from action. Just kind of shows some more of the intuitive wisdom that's contained in the steps that that correlates with how the Buddha views it. So that this is another reason why this practice is important to me that that and I hope to you that it it helps me to look more closely within myself and to see what what my motivation is moment by moment and sometimes to reflect back and realize oh I thought I was doing that for that reason but it was actually selfish. Yeah. One of the reasons that I really enjoy coming here uh, is you talk a lot about writing. Oh. Um, last, I, this is my second time I've come to see you, and I find writing to be very therapeutic uh, with regard to the steps. Yeah. A lot of writing involved in the steps. Um, I also write a lot throughout the day, and yeah. I find a form of catharsis and a form of uh, serenity when I write. That being said, it's probably the most difficult thing mm. I do during the day and in the evening. Um, I'm just curious, because you talk about your writing so much, what, what is your process with regard to mindfulness, uh, sitting down to write? Um, if you could, I don't know, elaborate on that a little bit. Yeah. Well, first of all, I have to say that I'm not a big one for writing inventory. Sort of. So my writing is usually... R- almost always focused on uh, self-expression even if it's a spiritual self-expression and something that I want, want to share because as I, you know that's what I do professionally 
Again, I use the term loosely. Um, but uh, there's a couple of things I want to say before I actually even get to your question, and by then I will have forgotten your question, so we might have to review. But the one of the things that uh, you find as you as you uh, work with your mind and see the different ways the mind expresses itself through thoughts, through spoken words, and through written words, is you see that each different form evokes different uh, or requires, I'm not sure what the word is, uh, each different form brings something different out. That is, Thoughts tend to be more nebulous and uh, unfocused, you know, and kind of they just sort of like ramble along. But then when you speak, you're forced to actually try to communicate something. It might not be in complete sentences all the time, but you are trying to communicate something that in your mind is probably a little not, not as formed. And then when you write, it requires you to, to form thoughts even more coherently. Because now someone's going to be reading it, and if you you know wrote down the stuff that we say in a normal conversation, have you ever seen you know when you see something like that, even when they like tap somebody's phone and you're trying to follow, it's like what what you know it doesn't make that much sense. So it, it so what happens is that for us as for when we're trying to express ourselves, we are forced to think more clearly on these different levels, which is why I think writing for inventory is important and why it's suggested because it forces us to actually really make some sense. And in fact, when I wrote, whenever I write, but particularly one breath at a time, I didn't know what I was going to (laughs) say until I got to like step eight. I was like, step eight? Geez, I've committed to writing this book. I've, I've accepted some money for it. What the heck? How can I write a chapter about writing a list? You know, and so it forced me to really think in ways that I never had about the step and steps and figure things out. So that that I think is is important, and and it's interesting to me these different ways that our mind makes sense. So coming back to your question, but like I guess you're asking about about mindfulness and and writing. Do I try to be mindful when I'm writing? I I write a lot during the day, not necessarily about things I want to be writing about, but I write. Kind of checking in and like... So to speak, yeah. Yeah. And uh, and I find that it's it's a great escape. It can be. I can use it as a form of escape or I can use it as a form of like deep expression Uh and contemplation Mm. and focus on what's really going on. You know, it, it does it does consolidate you know, my thoughts down into concise, identifiable traits, I would say. But, <laughs> but, um, I, I, I guess my question is like, is what, what is the process, if, if any, and you, you kind of just answered it, that you identify with the most when you're writing? When, like, how do you achieve and acquire mindfulness while you're writing? So I, I think that mind, that writing requires, more concentration than mindfulness. 
that is, mindfulness is more of an open awareness that's just kind of observing. And when I'm writing, I'm, I'm trying to get in a more of a zone, a focused zone, where I'm letting stuff come through. It's this, you know, this, this dance between letting it come through and kind of trying to bring, help it to get through, you know. Sounds a little like, anyway, now that's... Anyway, um, it sounded like something you do in the privacy of your own bathroom. So, um, so I don't think of it as very much mindfulness. You know, and concentration is part of meditation, right? And that's one of the reasons why it's good to meditate <laughs> if you're a writer, because it, you develop that strength. Uh, but uh, I wanted to ask you, and we, sh- we should take a break. This is, I don't usually go on like this, but I want to ask you what you mean by writing to escape. Um, well, I, I, I write professionally on one, in some capacity, okay. but I also write lots of fiction oh you know right and uh so sometimes i find myself writing fiction to escape yeah you know like yeah the writing i do i mean it's a beautiful thing i mean that's art right i i don't think of it as escape going in creating worlds you know i think it's a it's just a it's a human thing that we do i mean when you look at like you know, cave paintings, you know what I mean? It's like people have always, like, wanted to do, create something and, and to imagine something, to express something. It's, it's what we do very naturally. And um, so I, I don't, uh, it's, if it's an escape, it's, it's a healthy one. You know, escape is actually a healthy thing to some extent. You know, they, they say that altered states, that humans seek altered states. It's one of the problems that people in recovery have to figure out how to get into healthy altered states. It's one of the reasons people get addicted to exercise in, in recovery or uh, coffee or, or work or sex or gambling. That's not recovery. Anyway, let's take a break, a uh, little break, chat it up, and uh, we'll try to say more good things.